the remarks addressed to the Proud Boys stood out as a, a kind of bellwether of something pretty severe and to be taken seriously. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The first presidential debate is over, and the most memorable and disturbing moment may be when Donald Trump refused to denounce white supremacy and announced that the Proud Boys, a right-wing militia group, should, quote, stand by. Here to explain this and break down Trump's politics is Larry Rosenthal, the founder of the Center for Right-Wing Studies at University of California at Berkeley. His new book is Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. Larry Rosenthal, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Good morning. Well, let's start with that debate. Uh, let me just get your response to what you uh, saw. Well, I actually agree with the suggestion that um, the remarks addressed to the Proud Boys stood out as a you know, uh, a kind of bellwether of something pretty severe and to be taken seriously. Um, you know, Trump has been playing with conflating the private militias, the, the uh, militias of, of guys who go out into the countryside and practice and carry um, automatic weapons through the streets of, of uh, Portland and, and, and Minneapolis, Get, getting those guys, mm, conflating them with, with properly constituted authority. Um, and, and last night, symbolically, was he was giving them orders, stand down, stand by. He was also giving orders, in effect, to his uh, army, as he calls it, of poll watchers who um, it's very hard to understand as anything other than a force of intimidation. So in some way, I think of Trump last night as having crossed the Rubicon. <laughs> that is to say that um, the, the worst right-wing regimes, things like fascist regimes, um, have employed militias have employed, um, you know, as when they were movements, they were private militias. When they became the state, they be, the, the private militias were folded into the state. Um, Trump is attempting to conflate the public militias, and even his public militias are kind of, of dicey these days. They, they tend to be uh, drawn from the southern border, from the Department of Homeland Security, where these people have, in effect, trained in dealing with people in the most harsh way, in a way that respects no individual rights. Treat, they, they've been, as it were, trained to deal with people in a, quote-unquote, state of emergency. Those are the guys who have been brought up and in, in, on more than one occasion have appeared on the streets with no insignia, 
um, which also makes them kind of indistinguishable from things like the Proud Boys. So the, 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 the de facto conflation of these forces is, is, is you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to talk about fascism. Um, it's too easily thrown around. But one of the signatures of fascism is this is a use of militia. And Trump has, um, has been flirting with it for the longest time, even back in 2016. He would say things like, beat the crap out of him in his rallies and things of that nature, inciting violence. This is now uh, inciting uh, people who, who are predisposed to act as militias. Uh, people who showed up at Charlottesville uh, three years ago who, who have, have been um, uh, developing a, a kind of um, uh, what's called accelerationist point of view. That is to say that, what the hell, the time has come for picking up the guns and, and uh, uh, going to a second civil war. He's addressing people who have those conversations uh, directly among themselves these days. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I think you asked me a simple question and I gave you, I gave you a bit of a run-on answer, but I think that, um, that the thing you point out about uh, addressing the Proud Boys is something of considerable significance. Who are the Proud Boys? The Proud Boys is a, is a, is a, uh, a private, in the sense of, has nothing to do with government militia. They are people who, who um, uh, organize, and they organize online. They're, they depend on, on social media. And their position is, we are defending we are defending against property damage. We are defending the rights of white people. We are a defensive um, uh, entity. That's their um, explanation of why they appear in mass with, um, with automatic weapons. Uh, and they are part and parcel of a large number of uh, by now of such groups that distinguish themselves. They, they're the three percenters. There are, there are, there is a, a wide range of them. They all have slightly different um, takes on who they are, but they all belong to this accelerationist tendency. Um, and explain an what that is the accelerationist. Yeah. Um, I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> the, um, there is this long history, goes back to the 70s, uh, in, among the right-wing militia in this country. And it's about they're waiting for a spark, an event where the quote-unquote patriots will rise up armed and get rid of well, there are two things that they talk about. There's two threads in this. One of them is white nationalism, 
and one of them is anti-state. Um, you know, the, the kind of, the point of view that in, more, in slightly more sober hands walks under, under banners which say things like, don't tread on me. But these are people who take that to an extreme and are very devoted to quote unquote gun rights. Um, and under Trump, in the age of Trump, the uh, uh, one of these threads, the, the white nationalist thread, uh, had its moment, and that moment was Charlottesville. Um, you know, that was self-evidently uh, a white nationalist um, uh, event, and it was actually an attempt to create a unified militia. It was called the Unite the Right. And you remember the scene of, of, of these guys with uh, tiki torches uh, marching and so forth to evoke the um, uh, self-consciously the Third Reich. Um, okay, but, but, but Charlottesville kind of failed. It, 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 um, it, its leaders kind of dissolved as a unified force and a lot of these guys were, were brought up on charges and so forth and the public did not go for it. Um, so to some extent the white nationalist thread of the militia right kind of faded into the background and what you got rising is the anti-state side um, and the anti-state side is basically people who don't respect the authority of the government they say it's illegitimate. You know, you can remember back the Bundys facing off against against uh, uh, federal marshals in an in armed confrontation. That's the kind of point of view that became more. You know, the the tide on the militia right moved in that direction, and under that, um, you get things like you get this general tendency to what's called accelerationism, which is the time has come. It doesn't matter so much what the end is, what the goal is, just bringing the sucker down is the goal at this point. And that was expressed um, by things like the, the uh, Boogaloo boys. Um, that's what, that's what, they and the three percenters and um, the Proud Boys represent. That being said, we've had this extraordinary moment where uh, we have had two consecutive movements of, of, um, of people on the streets demonstrating. The first one was the anti-lockdown um, uh, demonstrations in which you had people who were kind of uh, like old Tea Party people, you know, you, you're taking away our rights. Who are you to tell us not to be outside? You had them, but they were joined by these accelerationists who, who, for whom uh, the government telling us what to do, we're not going to stand for that. So it, it was a moment in which that, that, uh, tendency and that point of view gained a lot of momentum. Immediately followed by nothing in between uh, the George Floyd demonstrations. 
which, which um, you have the, then these counter demonstrations of white nationalists. So both threads, the white nationalist side and the anti-state side, come out of this, this extraordinary spring and summer. Both of them um, uh, on a kind of, of upbeat, on a kind of up curve, and also the distinctions among them, between them, uh, disappearing to some extent, and each of those tendencies being uh, echoed by, by uh, the president and by his electoral campaign. His electoral campaign has said, we are um, in a state where you have the left, the, the, the destructive left, Antifa, which is, is kind of comical. Um, Why do you say that? Because they, they, are, they are in substance far more significant as a symbiotic um, necessity of the right-wing militia than they are uh, a, a political force in their own right. The right-wing militia, and this was true way back at Charlottesville and before, the, the people like Richard Spencer, one, the one-time head of the alt-right, um, you know, his point of view was that you're going to have, that, that what we are now going to face in America is street fighting of the left and the right. And he had to kind of conjure up a, a left which was in some way um, equivalent to the uh, militias on the right. And Donald Trump picked that up almost immediately back in Charlottesville. Um, and and uh, he, he actually used the phrase back then, the alt-left. But they're, they're, they, as a political entity, unlike the right-wing militias, um, uh, have uh, no significant substance as, an, as a movement unto themselves. And they, they referring to. Yes. They, 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 you know, um, they are a gift to the right wing and to the right wing militia. So how concerned are you right now? You are a scholar of the right wing movements. Um, here we are a month away from this election. Trump uses the debate to, as you say, issue orders to this kind of a simmering boiling pot that he's got uh, going on the right. Where do you think this could go in the next month? It's a very good question. Um, I, um, it's, it's early here in California, but I got up early and, and tried to read the right wing press, um, which I think of myself as doing as a public service um and and uh and it's interesting the the far right press um is enthusiastic about the debate last night including the uh summons to the proud boys um but the the line of 
where the right wing um, has followed Trump all along. Um, things like the Washington Times, the Washington Examiner, um, and the National Review, the New York Post, they weren't so keen on, on Trump last night. So it could be that, that um, a line that, you know, the, the respectable right, which has, which has kind of shined on the question of uh, uh, the excesses of Trumpism and the relationship to things like the militia right, the the uh, yeah, I, exposition I, last night may be uh, may. It's, it's very hard to say whether these things have any legs. Whether they'll you know tomorrow it it will still hold, but um, there was some restraint on uh, not only the the um, the Proud Boys business, but the general. Um, uh, screaming match and the bullying and so forth that 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 what that was unattractive and they stated in ways like um, it's not going to bring anybody in. I thought it was interesting that on Fox and Friends, which is essentially uh, the closest we have to a presidential briefing uh, each day, it's how Trump begins his day. One of the hosts, Brian Kilmeade, said this morning that uh, Trump's refusal to denounce white supremacy was missing the greatest layup in presidential debate history, Um, that this was, you know, an opportunity for him. He he cannot, he cannot, I think, emotionally um, reject anybody who says we support you. He can't do it. Um, it's, it's, you know, it would be like, um, it, it, it cutting off his oxygen. Um, so, you know, in, in the far right, you know, the, the daily stormer today, the, the Nazi paper, the neo-Nazi, uh, um, a website, you know, he's not just our president, he's our king. Um, so, you know. Trump is, I, you know, one doesn't want to get into psychological stuff, but he is, it seems, uh, prey to that kind of uh, adulation. And so the idea of saying, um, I don't, I, I reject the support of, you know, go back to David Duke. Uh, I reject the support of of uh, white nationalism is just anathema. It's it's like you know um, asking him to eat um, you know walnut shells and and, and fish bones. Has the uh, the Daily Stormer the the which I, I gather is the largest kind of online publication of the far right and the, and the Klan and the Nazis of the of the Nazi right. Let's of call the it. Nazis. Yeah, not not of of the far right writ large. But go ahead. Have they? So you're saying they're they're now referring to Trump as their king? 
Is that new, that kind of embrace of Trump? For no, them? no. Um, you know, uh, the, the leadership principle, which is a, uh, uh, a scholarly term for something that you find inside fascist movements, the Führer Prinzip, um, in which the leader is understood as this kind of a providential deliverance to the nation. And he, the, the leader and the leader alone can, in effect, channel the national interest or what the nation needs. So, you know, Trump has been that um, for this right. Um, you know, they don't take him seriously as a political actor. They don't think, you know, he is, he is, uh, um, he has a politics which are like theirs, but um, that he now occupies this role of um, being the incarnation of the national interest. <clears throat> that they buy into. And I would add, uh, parenthetically, to some extent, so has the entire Republican Party, to wit the absence of a platform. The platform at the um, Republican convention was, we stand for what this guy says. That's it. That is in cleaned up terms a um a a party becoming um uh going on the record as following the leadership principle the Fuhrer principe and for people who aren't familiar with what you're talking about the republican national convention for i believe the first time first did time. not have a republican party platform it simply said no they did they did. The platform was what this guy says. That was the platform. There was no independent platform. Right. So I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, but no, I think that's... it's really significant that they called it their platform. They so... called it their platform to say um, whatever he says. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Larry uh, Rosenthal. He is the founder of the Center for Right-Wing Studies at University of California, Berkeley, and the author of a new book, Empire of Resentment. Um, how did Trump fashion uh, you know, vague resentments into a political force to elect him? Well, what he did was he paid a lot of attention um, in the in the Obama years, he paid a lot of attention to right wing media. I mean, you know that he watches Fox News on an hourly basis, but he also paid attention to talk show hosts. He paid attention to websites like like Breitbart and and so forth. And what he discovered was that the the largest electoral base of the Republican Party, which I, I call the populist base, um, which, which had gone en masse into the Tea Party uh, with the election of, of Barack Obama, that inside that world, there was a revolution brewing. And it was a revolution that, that um, 
was taking aim at the Republican Party. You know, that the, the populists had always taken the liberal world writ large as their enemy. Over, over the period, uh, especially after 2015, um, oh, oh, I'm sorry, after 2012, after the, the, the second Obama election, um, and th there was an increasing tendency to reject the Republican leadership in the same way as elitists, that they had long rejected the, the Democratic Party. And he picked up on that and he picked up on, it was all coalescing around a single issue, which was immigration. And so what he did, if you remember the Tea Party, you know, they were against deficits, they were against Obamacare. Um, you know, they, they essentially had, had, had hewn to an ideology like the Koch brothers, extreme free market ideology. And he basically, saw where they were going and migrated them ideologically to his um, fr uh, America first nationalism. And, and so it came down finally in the Republican primaries of, of 2016, it, it came down finally to him versus Ted Cruz. And, and it was Ted Cruz was still back in the ideological um, uh, view of of free market extremism, and Trump was was tuned into the what was then where that population was moving, and he presented himself successfully as the voice of that of that rebellion within the Republican populist. Uh, electoral base. Uh, Larry, what, what is your nightmare scenario for this fall? Um, you know, the nightmare scenario is um, the militias actually rise up. They actually, after years and years and years of believing there would be a moment a spark where the patriots would rise up and and there have been a lot of sparks self-consciously we're going to do something to to create a spark to wit uh you know timothy mcveigh or dylan roof um you know from the anti-state side and one from the the uh, uh white nationalist side as examples but they didn't happen now we have a provocation on a much greater scale we have a provocation coming from the president of the United States. So the question of whether this is sufficient provocation that this fantasy, which has endured for decades, actually has the stuff right now to, to realize itself. I would add parenthetically that in the fantasy, there is the idea, there has always been the idea that the military and the police would, would join their side. Um, the, the professional military in this country seems to me plainly um, uh, rejecting that role. The police are a little more, a, a little dicier than that. Um, 
but uh, I don't think that um, it's a it's it's a given that that they will rise up. I I I, I don't I don't think that's that we should we should be aware of it of the potential for it. Um, we should understand that uh, the institutions need to hold and that, you know, the left and others need to support the American institutions, um, including, including law enforcement, um, including the military, including the FBI, including, you know, things that the, the left has defined itself against um, in large measure over the years. But um, the way in which that uh, potential for um, civil war, as it's often called these days, um, the thing that would uh, put a cover on that are the American institutions. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Larry Rosenthal, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Larry Rosenthal is the founder of the Center for Right-Wing Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. His new book is Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. In the first presidential debate, President Trump repeatedly referred to what he called the radical left, accusing Joe Biden of being a part of it. So what is the left today? Is it socialist, capitalist? Where does Bernie Sanders fit in? Here to explain all this is John Judas. He's editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo, the former senior editor at The New Republic, the author of many books, including The Populist Explosion. His new book out this week is The Socialist Awakening, What's Different Now About the Left? John Judas, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm glad to be with you. I wish I was with you in person. <laughs> well, the foliage is pretty fantastic right now, I will say. Yeah. Well, uh, let's start with the uh, the news that's on everybody's mind and just got to get your reaction to that first presidential debate. Uh, it, it was really painful to watch. And um, I don't uh, I, I, I don't buy this idea that uh, elections are based upon personality and just what voters think of whether somebody would be fun to be with in a bar or whatever, but that was a, a debate that was really marked by uh, Trump's personality. And uh, he, he's become like, um, it's not Hitler Mussolini, it's the Roman Empire, emperors, uh, Caligula, Nero, uh, Shakespeare's crazy kings, people like that, uh, who are um, uh, somewhat unhinged, full of grievances, resentment, exaggerated sense of his own accomplishment. Um, so it was, it was scary to watch in a way. I mean, Trump was sort of fun to listen to in uh, 2015 and early 2016, where before he started cordoning off the press and you could go around freely and talk to the people at his rallies and stuff. I mean, he was funny. Uh, you know, he he had his uh, uh, bigoted edge, but he could also he also had a sense of humor. The guy last night did not have a sense of humor. He was just filled with uh, bitterness and this sense of grievance. So uh, 
it, it, it's painful to contemplate that this guy is our president and by some uh, uh, chicanery could end up uh, uh, reelected. Well, how do you think Biden did? Uh, I think he did okay. I mean, I think he's kind of, he's kind of stiff and uh, he's not very dynamic. Um, I could imagine other candidates, uh, you know, Bill Clinton or, you know, uh, Barack Obama in their prime doing better. But uh, really, he did no damage to himself. And uh, Trump did do a lot of damage. And, and really, in this election, uh, it, it's a matter of, of uh, trying to get rid of Trump. I don't I don't uh, I don't know how good a president uh, Obama uh, Biden will be, whether he'll rise to the occasion or not. But we have to uh, end this kind of reign of, uh, of, uh, uh, of really a kind of ancient tyrant uh, that we've uh, elected in 2016. Well, um, as an author, I'm sure you appreciated that Trump steered uh, the discussion directly into your wheelhouse because he repeatedly tried to hang the socialist label on Joe Biden. So let me ask you, as a scholar of socialism, is Joe Biden a socialist? Uh, I, I wouldn't say so. But again, I, I have a more flexible view of socialism and socialist history than, uh, than some people do. Uh, and I think that if he were in office, he would do things that would shift the balance of power from uh, uh, business to labor. For instance, his emphasis on, on encouraging uh, unions. Uh, and I think he would be forced by circumstances, again, to expand uh, national health care. Um, he's talked about having a public option. And I think that uh, some, to some extent, the Republican paranoia about this is correct, that it could swallow up private insurance, especially in states uh, where private insurers don't feel that they can make sufficient profit from uh, getting, giving people uh, selling insurance. So um, he could tend toward policies that put the public first, that put pu public interest before profits, and that shift the balance of power in America. So in, the, in that sense, you know, you could find uh, elements of socialism in a, in a Biden, Biden administration, but he is not uh, uh, in any sense a doctrinaire socialism, and he has nothing no resemblance at all between him and somebody like Venezuela's Madero, who um, you know Trump has compared him to. So the other phrase Trump uh, uses a lot and used a lot in the debate is uh, the radical left, and that Biden is a captive of the radical left. Um, you actually write and think a lot about the left. Uh, what is Trump referring to here? What can you decode what radical left means? Well, look, there is a radical left in America that is a little unhinged itself and that concerns me and that is sort of a counterpart to the to the crazy right. And uh, we've seen a little of that in the protests, in the most violent protests, in the arson, in the, you know, burning down small businesses, uh, threatening people at restaurants and stuff like that. There is, a, there is a side to that. Biden, of course, is not uh, uh, part of that and has uh, done his best to try to distance himself from those kind of uh, uh, politics. Uh, most of the left in America has nothing to do with that stuff. But there, you know, there is something, there is a problematic left. And I think you've seen it in Portland and you've seen it in uh, Seattle. 
Can you locate Biden, uh, you know, all of this overheated rhetoric aside, locate Biden on the left? Because you sort of chart the full spectrum of the left. So where does our current Democratic nominee fit in? Uh, you know, it's going to be hard to say un- until he becomes president because uh, pe- people's politics are shaped to a great extent by the kinds of challenges uh, they face. Um, if you take Obama, uh, he ran very much as a kind of candidate of the center left, and uh, he governed that way, as it turned out. And uh, I, I don't think to some extent he did rise to the occasion in 2009. I don't, don't think he understood the political challenge challenges that, that he faced from Republicans. Um, and I don't think he moved fast enough on Wall Street and the, and, uh, the banks. I, I, I have hopes that Biden learned something from that experience. Um, but on the other hand, he's always been a kind of institutionalist in, in terms of his uh, uh, past as a senator. And uh, I don't, again, I don't know uh, how hard he's going to move uh, in terms of uh, issues like the filibuster, uh, the court, uh, these kind of constitutional issues that he's going to face as president. Uh, if the Senate retains the filibuster, it's going to be very hard for them to accomplish uh, anything uh, in terms of legislation. I don't think they're going to have a 60-vote uh, majority in the uh, Senate. I, I'm, I, in fact, I, don't, I can't imagine how that could come to be. I think even if they won all the seats. So um, he's going to have to be bold. And uh, Biden in the past has not been very bold. So we'll we'll have to see. But we're in such unusual circumstances with this pandemic and recession. We're in really the worst kind of uh, situation we've had since 1932. Uh, So it's uh, it's, it's not business as usual. And I think he understands that. We have to look and see who he appoints uh, to. I think that'll be uh, Secretary Treasury and Attorney General I would look to in in particular. Mm. Um, Well, let's get to the topic uh, of your newest book, The Socialist Awakening. Um, Socialism and socialist has, you know, Americans are coming to, to know these terms in part as epithets that Trump hurls at his opponents. So can you just explain um, without the frothing at the mouth that we've come to expect from the president. What is socialism? Well, look, you know, there is no definition of socialism, just as there is no definition of populism or conservatism that, you know, gets every particular instance of it and defines it. So we're not looking at that. What I was interested in in the book was this very unusual thing that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years, which is that young people coming up into politics uh, now, you know, maybe age 18 to 40 now, reaching that age, uh, have suddenly become receptive to the idea of socialism. And when you look at, when you ask them, are you, you know, do you favor capitalism or socialism? They'll say socialism. Now, do they mean the same thing that somebody would would mean by socialism in 1956? Absolutely not. This is not a Cold War generation. These are not people who grew up in the shadow of the Soviet Union. 
So uh, what, what I think they understand by it is an alternative to capitalism. Capitalism, uh, the reset, Great Recession in 2008, which uh, they had to live, live through. Climate change as a product, again, of unregulated uh, capitalism. So socialism appears not as some really clearly fixed Marxist uh, or, or Marxist and Leninist uh, doctrine, but rather as the idea of some of a more regulated capitalism, uh, government control where the industries themselves prove intransigent. If let's say the insurance companies won't go along with reasonable kinds of regulation, then we'll have to have Medicare for all. Um, again, stronger uh, labor unions, uh, worker can work some more, more worker power from below, cooperation, racial equality, sexual equality, uh, those kind of ideas. And it's not so crazy because when the original ideas of socialism did not necessarily come from Marx, that's, you're talking later, they were Christian socialism, the idea of cooperation and cooperatives. So in, in some sense, we're even going back to the 19th century and going out particularly in America to the uh, legacy of Christian socialism. Um, so, uh, uh, again, I think that that's what we're seeing. I think, again, if you, I interviewed a lot of people in 2016 and also in the last um, election, one of when it was possible to uh, leave my room um, and, and ask them what they meant by socialism. And it, again, that's what you, those are the kind of things you get. Uh, you get uh, Medicare for all, um, some degree of regulation, Scandinavia being more like Sweden, Denmark. Uh, you don't get Soviet Union and you don't get some, again, kind of Marxist utopia where uh, uh, the government owns and controls all the means of production. I, I thought uh, it was an interesting point that you make in your book. You interview a woman who I believe is the head of Democratic Socialists of America or, or, uh, or um, is part of a chapter in Oregon. And uh, she said explicitly she had not, she is a socialist, but she said she had not read Marx and didn't want to read Marx because that would spoil socialism for her. Uh, and she described her brand of socialism as being very much community-based um, I mean, that was very striking. I grew up in a generation where Marx was, you know, the, the North Star of socialism. But uh, from what you're saying, not anymore. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, she was a, a, a part of uh, the youth chapter of, uh, of uh, Democratic Socialists of America. They, unfortunately, do have their share of Orthodox uh, Marxists, of which, you know, I was one myself in the 60s. So, so uh, say a little bit about your own journey uh, through socialism and where, how, how you have uh, evolved. Well, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm exactly Bernie's age, you know. We're like, I think, 15 days apart. And uh, I was uh, at Berkeley in the 60s and the uh, civil rights and a war movement. And uh, I was a member of SDS. And uh, my main uh, experience as socialist was in 1969, a bunch of us got together. And I was, uh, I was one of the young people. The others were uh, older 
um, academics uh, had been uh, some some come out of the Communist Party, and we tried to uh, develop a what, what at the time was democratic socialist ideas, and we started a journal called Socialist Revolution, and we called it Revolution because uh, at the time this was 1969. Um, if you called yourself a socialist, not a communist, you were seen as kind of squishy. And, uh, um, you, you know, some, some people complain about people like Biden. I mean, you weren't, you weren't serious. So we had put socialist revolution. Of course, within a year, it became uh, ridiculous. Uh, and the journal eventually became Socialist uh, Review uh, and dropped the term uh, revolution. But the idea there was, again, to somehow pick up the early new left of SDS, participatory democracy, and to bypass this, the craziness that began in 1969 with these groups like weathermen who thought of themselves as uh, fifth columns within the United States that were going to destroy the mother country. Uh, so again, we, you know, go, going very back, like Bernie did, going back to the idea of Debs and the American Socialist Party. Hmm. So socialism and fascism have long been rival ideologies. And in times of instability, there is the potential for countries to turn far right or far left. And we've certainly seen uh, that in the 20th century. Um, Where do you think the U.S. is at right now? Uh, We're at exactly that uh, kind of moment. I mean, I... You know the comparison I made made in the book is to the is to the late nineteen twenties early nineteen thirties where all the all the sort of conventional wisdom about how uh capitalism was going to work that you didn't need a lot of uh, regulations that you could have something called a gold standard that just automatically uh uh regulated the world economy all these things came a cropper. And what you had was a, a time when suddenly governments realized that they had to take a lot of initiative and do things. And you know that can go in a number of different directions. In, in Central and Southern Europe, it went very far to the right. We had Hitler, Mussolini, and you know there were strong fascist movements uh, throughout Eastern Europe and you know as well as in France. So uh, that's, that was one direction. The other direction was Roosevelt and the New Deal, uh, where really we had the beginnings of a, of a government intervention that was uh, on behalf of people and not uh, profits, and where, where uh, um, we really laid the groundwork for an American uh, welfare state and social democracy. Uh, we're we're facing very similar situation now. The e- Republicans are now recognizing that they're going to have to have big government. I mean, any if you hear some Democrat uh, Republican complaining about uh, deficits or about uh, big spending, uh, then you're you know you must be uh, hearing things from the past and not the present because they you know they passed the debate now is whether between one trillion and three trillion two two point two trillion dollar budget. So we're going to have to go really big in the next few years. And it's going to happen whether Trump is in office or whether Biden's in office. And the question is, 
how we're going to do it and on whose behalf we're going to do it and who's going to come out ahead when we finally uh, get out of this pandemic. So yeah, it's a very similar kinds of situation and the country is going to really change over the next four years and it can change for the better or for the worse. How concerned were you at the debate that Trump uh, was signaling to his armed supporters that they need to stand by? Uh, I'm very worried. I mean, I've ne- I never thought I'd face this kind of situation in the United States. Um, it, it, politically, it's, he's making a, a terrible mistake. I mean, he's turning the election into a referendum, not just on himself, but on democracy. And that's a, that's a losing issue. But at the same time, uh, the threat hovers of uh, they're trying to uh, take, the ele- take the election away. I, I don't think there's any doubt at this point about, about the popular vote, uh, that Biden will win the popular vote. There's too many states like New York and California that are going to go, uh, I don't know, you know, 70-30 or something like that. And other big states like Texas and Florida are going to be very close. So, you know, again, we're facing a constitutional crisis no matter what happens. Uh, but uh, we could what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? A constitutional well, crisis? look, the, the Electoral College uh, is one of those kinds of gimmicks from, the, uh, from 1787 to 89 that was created uh, initially in order to to uh, have a kind of a elective monarchy where the electors would be chosen by the uh, state by the state legislators and not by the people and where they were supposed to you know uh choose the wisest ma- man and not uh, uh choose according to party but it's evolved in such a way where it's very possible that a minority of voters rep rep uh representing smaller states, uh, could dictate the results of the election. And, you know, we had that a little in the 19th century, but now we've had it twice uh, in the last uh, uh, 20 years, and we could have it again. And that raises all kinds of doubts about whether we really have a democracy. And uh, so even in the situation where Trump might eke out a victory. It will still represent, I think, a constitutional crisis. But of course, if he tries, if he loses the electoral college and the popular vote and tries to stay in office, then then we have a completely unprecedented situation. Well, I mean, we didn't have that in 1860 either. Uh, Lincoln did become the president. The South seceded, but uh, this is this is uh, will be unprecedented for us and very very dangerous. I mean, the thing to the thing that, that uh, to to recognize, though, is that we're, it's not Hitler or Mussolini. Uh, Hitler had a, almost a million man army at his disposal. You know, again, his his uh, his own army, in addition to the military itself, and in addition to support for business. The one remarkable thing about this election is it really is a popular front uh, from above. I mean, Biden has, uh, ha- I would suspect, I've seen some result uh, polling and and uh, I've seen some financial record. I think mean, he has pretty much uh, mo- uh, the elite in this country uh, supporting him. I mean, there's very, Trump has very little support. Uh, among top uh, business leaders, top military people. Um, 
you know, I mean, he has us, he has the police. I mean, I'd say that's his main, uh, <laughs> that's well, his main I mean, uh, dangerous the, political base. But the at the very top, it's uh, it's pro Biden. But I mean, you have the traditional Republican, you know, big money, the Koch brothers who are prepared to spend a billion dollars in this election, Mercers. I mean, these have been uh, Sheldon Adelson. These have been the deep pockets of the Republican Party for a long time, and they're very much with Trump. No, I, my understanding is that, that the Koch brothers are not with Trump. It's, I guess it's not the brothers anymore either. It's just Charles. I mean, they are not supporting him. I mean, they've said that. I'm, I, I will, uh, after we get off the air, I'll check again, but I'm 99% sure that they are not supporting him. They won't uh, support Biden, but they're not giving any money to him. Uh, I think the Mercers, there's, there's also alienation there. Uh, Adelson is probably still supporting him, but as you may know, he's dying. And uh, the fact that Trump is in financial trouble, his campaign, uh, suggests to me that he's not getting a lot of money that he got from, uh, the, you know, the Home Depot guy and people like that um, in in uh, his last election. I think Peter Thiel is also uh, uh, not uh, in, uh, supporting Trump. So th- that's why I say it's a remarkable uh, alliance from above uh, against Trump. And, you know, again, with, with Hitler and Mussolini, you had the threat of an organized left taking over the country. And uh, so they were able to get business uh, on their side, as well as the military in a way that, you know, Trump really doesn't. So if we face a really kind of crazy crisis, uh, I just don't suspect, I, I don't think he's going to be able to survive. I think that they'll turn against him. And I would include the Supreme Court too. Um, We just have a minute left, but I do want to uh, turn to Bernie Sanders, who you write a lot about in your book, The Socialist Awakening. Um, How important is Bernie Sanders in the modern socialist movement? Uh, Bernie Sanders and Eugene Debs are the two main main historical figures. And Bernie transformed uh, the vocabulary of socialism in America I mean, again, he's an old guy. He's not a 20-year-old, but he set the terms for what socialism means for a lot of young people in this country. Uh, And he also uh, energized and awakened people like me who, on a theoretical basis, still believe that uh, some version of socialism was preferable, but just didn't think it was politically uh, a winner at all in the United States. And I was just astonished at how well he did in 2016. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it energized me and it's, uh, it, it's why I ended up writing the book I did. What happens to socialism after Bernie Sanders exits politics? It's hard to say because, you know, in the United States, we still have a, a lot of older voters who see socialism as the Soviet Union. And uh, national candidates and, and national politicians, and I'd use Elizabeth Warren as, as a key example, uh, are uh, understandably reluctant to call themselves socialists, yet they espouse policies and that are really, there's not a dime's worth of difference between uh, Warren and Sherrod Brown, let's say, and Bernie Sanders. I mean, they're very much in the same boat. 
So what I would suspect, again, is we may not see a, an upsurge of socialism by name, but I think we will see socialist policies uh, espoused by people like Warren Brown and the coming generation, uh, you know, leader of which is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but we actually, we need some people in between, between the people who are in their late 60s and early 70s and, and uh, people now coming up in their 20s and 30s. Uh, so I, I, would, I would suspect we'll have so, uh, socialism, but it not, might not be called that. Okay, well, John Judas, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure. John Judas is editor-at-large of Talking Points Now. He's the former senior editor at the New Republic and is the author of the new book, The Socialist Awakening, What's Different Now About the Left? That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.